Hello, and welcome to the Satellite Image Deep Learning Podcast. I'm Robin Cole, and it's my pleasure to present another technically focused episode in the series. In this episode, I catch up with Nathan Kuntz to learn about the creation and use of synthetic data in training machine learning models. Nathan has a PhD in physics and over 40 peer-reviewed papers and 15 patents to his name. As a serial entrepreneur, he has successfully founded multiple companies and raised over $250 million in venture capital funding. This conversation was a deep dive into the fascinating topic of synthetic training data, and I personally gained many valuable insights from Nathan's wealth of knowledge and experience. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Nathan. How are you doing? I'm well, Robin. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Fantastic. Uh, I'm really looking forward to diving into this topic, uh, synthetic imagery. Maybe you can get the ball rolling just by telling us what it is and why it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so synthetic imagery is really, the need for synthetic imagery is really driven by the importance of, of using artificial intelligence across a whole range of applications, but I think today, especially in, in, in satellite imagery analysis. Um, so there's there's just so much imagery uh, now being generated by both commercial and, and government resources that it's, it's literally impossible to have it all reviewed and analyzed by humans. And so almost all of the insights we get from that data has to be has to come from computer vision and and automatic capabilities um and in the the uh, the tools that we use to do that uh, in ai are trained using data sets so um we you know it, artificial intelligence i sometimes joke is is just software but instead of writing it in, in some programming language we write it in data um yeah. and so the the performance that we achieve is really based on the data that we have access to. Um, and, and when you get into real world environments, um, data access, it turns out, is, is really, really difficult. And we can spend more time on each of these, but some of the, some of the things people run into are uh, rare, rare events, rare scenarios, rare objects. Um, you, know, you can collect a lot of data before you see some, even a few examples of some critical things. You know, imagine trying to detect forest fires. You know, you, you've got to take a lot of data before you start to find those. Um, and, um, and that, that becomes a real challenge if you want to build mm -hmm. algorithms to, to do that kind of detection. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the, the reason that we originally actually founded the company, um, was because of the systems engineering problem that shows up when you haven't yet even deployed the satellite. Right. So, um, I come from a physics background, I have PhDs in physics and, uh, my first company, uh, was a hardware company producing electronically scanned antennas for satellite communications. And I, I was used to uh, what what is called a model-based design workflow for engineering. You, you simulate the environment, you you use that to drive what you want to build. And I was really struck that um, in these imagery applications, you really couldn't do that. You had to make a best guess, and the business models were often, "Hey, we're going to you know raise a hundred or two hundred million dollars, build satellites for a couple of years, launch them, collect data mm -hmm. for six months." Then we'll figure out what kind of algorithm we can build. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that has obvious problems, both from a technical and business perspective. So an alternative to doing those things is to use simulated or synthetic data where you, where you um, are, are simulating uh, seemingly real world environments in order to ask the question, what would a sensor see? But then mm -hmm. doing that at scale with a lot of diversity and, and in so doing, creating a stand in, uh, for those real world data sets without the need for that scenario to have ever happened or that sensor to have ever existed. Right. So you can simulate what a satellite will image 
even before it's been built, just based on an understanding of how it will be designed and the scene itself. I'm quite interested how you guarantee that if something is rare, how you can reproduce it. If you've only got a couple of examples, what's the, the general methodology there? Yeah, absolutely. And in, and in some cases, we have zero examples, right? Complete zero shot. So, so, um, and I think I think in answering this question, I should distinguish between two different types of data generation that are both prevalent today. Um, one is what's called a generative AI. It's it's a term that's sort of new, um, uh, a very exciting field where you use imagery that you have, and then and then and then a prompt or or some other approach, mm-hmm. and you generate more. Um, and in, in that approach, purely doesn't do a good job of creating things that you've never seen before, because almost by definition, they have to the the objects that you're going to create have to be resident in the data set that you trained that original AI algorithm on. Um, our approaches focus on a physics-based simulation somewhere in in the core. Now we use generative techniques as well, and and, and things like domain adaptation. So the complete pipeline involves a lot of different steps. But foundational to introducing new information to uh, to the data and, and essentially the way that we're able to address this, hey, we've never seen it before or never seen it before with this sensor, is that we are actually uh, doing a physics-based simulation of that environment. So that means we have a, a 3D model. We, we actually define things like um, you know, reflectance curves and emissivity of surfaces, temperature of surfaces if we're getting into mm. kind of infrared. Um, Conductivity, you know, if we're, if we're talking about radar returns, et cetera, um, and and then by actually simulating that environment, um, we could have, you know, it's possible that it doesn't exist or, or 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 won't exist, but we can still anticipate what we would see uh, from a sensor. Right, and these models have they been developed recently, or have these models that have evolved over decades? Yeah, the the physics-based models are things that have developed over decades. So, like we have a terrific partnership with uh, with Deersig out of RIT. They've got about thirty years of heritage in doing really, really solid uh, physics-based modeling of, of satellite sensors. We also use um, open source uh, rendering engines like uh, Blender, um, Unreal Engine, etc., um, as well as partnerships for for like X-ray simulation. We've got our own. Uh, synthetic aperture radar simulator. Mm. So we use a lot of different simulation tools. Um, we try to actually avoid writing our own whenever possible. Um, but what we find is that those tools really are always designed to be run by people that are domain experts. So you have, you know, if you if you have a tool that's, that's sort of meant for infrared simulation, it's it's kind of like somebody with that electrical engineering degree and optics is, is sort of running it and defining what they want to see. Same thing for radar, right? You're going to have a radar scientist that's actually running that mm-hmm. tool. And and in so in, in, because of that, they're almost never very usable by a computer vision engineer, right? Mm-hmm. Computer vision engineer already has a PhD. <laughs> they, they don't need another PhD or they don't want to have to have another PhD in order to address synthetic data. So a lot of what's been missing is, is the connectivity between those two users right mm-hmm. so how do you how do you get the skills and knowledge out of somebody with 3d modeling and simulation expertise or deep domain expertise and then have them be able to you know broadly stated deploy that knowledge into something which can be really used mm-hmm. by uh, by a computer vision engineer right okay that's really a good background to the algorithms themselves i'm curious about the general capability can i simulate an entire country or was that, I guess that's probably not practical. What kind of practical bounds are there on the size of scenes that you yeah. can simulate? 
I mean, it depends on the mesh size that you want for that country, right? right. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, you know, it, it, at some point, each of the simulations, you know, there's a limitation in terms of compute and system memory. Um, in terms of what that means physically, that will depend on what's being simulated, what, you know, what resolution it's being simulated at. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not an easy question to give a, a single answer to. Um, we do do very large simulations sometimes, uh, certainly tens of kilometers on a side, uh, sometimes hundreds of kilometers on a side. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, with the work that we've done with Planet um, and, and hyperspectral simulation, you know, we have very, very large areas uh, that are being simulated. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're but they're but they're doing that. You know, the the sensor has a um, a, a fairly uh, low resolution, right? It's meant it's meant for spectral yeah. resolutions. Yeah, so there's a sort of practical limit based on a couple of factors in terms of spectrum and resolution and presumably sort of complexity of the scene as well. Okay. That's right. And to be clear, we, we've done everything from literally microscopic scenes, right? So, like, you know, getting down into, into microns across uh, some of the future sizes all yeah. the way into, you know, ge geospatial scale. So, um, okay. We, the domain can, can vary quite a bit. Okay. Well, I'm really keen to dive into the implications for the machine learning practitioners as well. Um, and you can feel free to sort of make up scenarios, et cetera, based on your sure. own experience about giving away confidential information. But what are the practicalities if I literally come to you and say, I've got 10 images of something in such and such a place and I need a yeah. model that's 90% accurate tell me how much data I need to simulate and how would you, you know, guarantee that I will hit the accuracy in the real world? What does that whole process look like? Sure, 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 sure. Um, well, first of all, so, so just like you wouldn't be able to guarantee like a particular performance score from labeling real data, like we don't, you know, it's not, it's not a, Hey, for sure you hit this. And then a lot of problems, you got to figure out how hard the problem is in the first place. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a lot there's a lot packed into that uh, packed into that question. Um, so let me see if I can if I can separate a, a few things out. First of all, if you came with only ten example images, then we don't even have a test set. So there's no there'd be no way to even tell you, hey, this algorithm performs at you know a, a, a AP fifty score of ninety mm -hmm. because we have nothing to compare it with. So what we would do in that case is we would actually begin by probably simulating something that was less rare to see if we can get. Uh, you know, what the performances look like. So like, if you say, Hey, I'm trying to find, you know, ice cream trucks in, you know, Alaska, like, okay, we don't have very many pictures of ice cream trucks in Alaska, but maybe we have pictures of white cars. In Alaska, mm -hmm. right? And so we'll use that as a stand in and see how well we're able to, to do with that. Um, our experience is that synthetic data when paired with real data for some of those, let's say smaller objects on a geospatial scale, um, gives you sort of a 10 to 100x boost on any real data that you have. So the performance that you end up achieving um, would be, you know, if you had 100 examples of of your of your system, you know, you get you get something like uh, the equivalent of, of having a thousand or ten thousand of them. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that's, you know, that'll get you well into the 90s in terms of performance. Yeah. It depends on what you're trying to find. Um, as the object scale grows, you're more likely to be able to do it with with no real objects at all. So you you you're able to, uh, in general, I'm speaking in broad generalities here, but 
computer vision algorithms do a better job of understanding structure as they have more pixels to work with. Mm -hmm. um, and so in those cases, we see a lot better results from pure zero shot. So you only need the synthetic data and you get to very, very high performance. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, in practice, there are just a lot of ways in which people really do use synthetic data. So um, the other common uh, common scenario is, you know, you've got 10 examples of something, okay? But you might be sitting on a data set that is massive because you've been collecting data for a while. It's just not annotated. Mm. So there could be more than 10 in there, but it'll cost you millions of dollars to have humans go hunt for the pixels to find them and build that training set. So in that case, um, what we've had some people do is build up even a low performing algorithm, say, you know, an AP score of 50, but now they can run it on a million mm. images and they get to now a much larger number of real world imagery and that allows them to bootstrap an algorithm, you know, the whole performance. And they've, they've taken a process that would have been millions of dollars and months of annotation and turned that into a few days um, yeah. because now they can just, you know, they, they, they're able to sift through and remove, you know, 99.99% of what's in there what's left, you know, a human can go in and check. Yeah. I think there was quite a good example recently tracking this balloon that was heading over North America. Somebody started with just a drawing and they used that to train a model that then I think found candidate examples and they trained a more accurate model and then tracked this thing. That's that's the kind of scenario you're you're talking about there. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's a great use case for synthetic data. Sort of the better the data that you have and the faster that you can put it into that yeah. uh, type of application that the sooner you end up with, with larger data sets to train on. Fantastic. Okay. That's been a really good introduction to the, the technologies. I definitely want to push in a bit more deeply onto the sort of boundaries of the usefulness of generative data. So there's been quite a few papers where people have used GANs to like augment data sets, and that presumably complements, you know, the approach that you developed as well. Yeah. Uh, maybe you can just sort of, you know, compare and contrast those two approaches and maybe suggest when maybe a hybrid approach would make sense yeah the you know the the uh, the gan based approaches um or generative approaches broadly or diffusion based approaches are very very powerful and the but the the drawback is that they don't do totally new things they they do you know variations they they can uh, they can interpolate but they can't really extrapolate very well if that makes mm. sense the um so the ways in which we've found them to be useful in the types of real world business problems that people face, particularly in satellite imagery, is, is not in creating the whole image, but is in helping to create um, maybe more diversity in the scene. So if you say, hey, you know, I have a car, maybe I have a 3D model of a car. Well, you may wanna put all sorts of paint jobs on it, you know, rust effects, snow effects, other things. Now, generative AI is a great way to do that. You can create those textures, you can apply them, you get something that looks pretty physically realistic, um, and you can apply that to that environment. And now, now you get a thousand times more diversity. I mean, just making mm. up a number, but you get, you, get, you get a huge multiple on the amount of diversity you can get from that object by using generative AI, but you're still going to turn around and simulate what that looks like under some physically realistic uh, conditions. Does that make sense? So you yeah. still get that that traceability and assurance of realism um, by using a by using a physics based model. Yeah. Uh, so so that's 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 just one small example of a place where you know generative AI sits inside of a workflow that includes some physics based simulation, mm. and then that allows you to get yeah the 
the physical accuracy, but also the traceability and history of, of what was actually produced. Yeah, there's been a couple of papers about physics constrained machine learning, where somehow the outputs of models were input to another model, and then it was determined if it was a realistic uh, output of a model, and then there was a sort of iterative process. Uh, I suppose something like that hypothetically might might have a future uh, in this domain. Yeah, I think I think there's there's ways there's certainly you know there's ways to assess whether or not a, a purely generative tool produced something that's physically realistic i mean but i think i, I almost feel like that's 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 pointing out exactly the problem <laughs> like how much do you trust now that algorithm as to whether or not it's yeah. physically realistic and so you know that's the the challenges are you're, you're when you when you kind of interpolate between things that you've seen before the points don't necessarily mean something uh that's that's physically grounded um mm -hmm. and sometimes that's okay uh, but but oftentimes it's not. Depends on what you're trying to to do. In in satellite imagery, because a lot of the problems that people really face are these rare object rare scenario problems or cold start problems, where the the sensor doesn't exist yet, so you you know you don't have anything to feed the generative AI in the first place. Um, the uh, having a physics based element is, is really crucial. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for this detailed insight into synthetic imagery. I actually wanted to end the conversation just with a slightly bigger picture question. Obviously, you work in multiple domains, not just remote sensing, but probably medical and others as well. I'm just curious where the remote sensing field sits compared to other domains in terms of their adoption of this kind of approach and overall kind of engagement with sort of AI and machine learning driven approaches. Yeah. Um, so the remote sensing industry broadly is, is has been an early adopter of computer vision for years, uh, right? For decades, really. Um, and and similarly, is an early adopter of synthetic data because they face these very large data problems. They face a, a, a constrained workforce really throughout, um, and they sort of intrinsically feel that need to generate insights as opposed to imagery. And so we actually we started with remote sensing as our beachhead market. Uh, we found very receptive um, users within that market, um, have, have a, a lot of different clients that are doing all sorts of things there. Um, and they're fun problems right there. They're mm -hmm. also difficult and important to solve problems. So it's been it's been a great place to, to be. Um, so uh, um, I would say I'd say definitely leading the charge in many ways. You know, uh, remote, remote sensing and then autonomous vehicles are sort of like the other place mm -hmm. where you see uh, people really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with computer vision. And then I think what we're finding is um, the fast followers sit in, in security, like security imaging, cameras, uh, airport scanning, things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, manufacturing uh, is, is sort of up and coming quickly. Medical is uh, sees the need, but will take longer. It's just, it's a, just a highly regulated industry. Um, and so that's one that we think has a lot of potential that will take a little bit more time to get to. Yeah. Well, that's a really fascinating insight. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Uh, if people want to follow along with, uh, I guess, your your business and also your personal updates, where's the best platform for them to do that? Sure. LinkedIn is, is where I think we're, we're most active. So um, rendered.ai, you'll find us on LinkedIn. Of course, you're more than welcome to sign up for our newsletter as well from our website, uh, www.rendered.ai. Really complicated stuff. There you go. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, and I uh, look forward to talking again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Robin. Pleasure. Okay.